The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at tntradio.live. From the Cold War to propaganda and the deep state. Helen Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Yes, hello. Welcome to TNT. Today's show or intro opening is going to be about uh, Putin's interview with Tucker Carlson last night, European time. And I won't go into too much detail. I'll just give you some impressions. I watched the whole thing so that you don't have to, or maybe you'll watch it anyway. Um, I wasn't surprised by uh, Putin's fluency, and I think that will be the takeaway that many casual viewers who are not interested in 15th century Ukrainian history will take away from it. He looked uh, well-dressed. He didn't look like the Austrian painter 2.0, as somebody people have said, or, or a madman with horns and a tail but a perfectly rational statesman, obviously looking after Russia's interests, but not uh, an evil man. So to some extent, he, he, with one fell swoop, thanks to Tucker Carlson, one of the most popular journalists in the world, he has uh, turned the tables on many, many years of cartooning and hating on him in uh, the British and American media and European media who have described him uh, secondhand. And now, perhaps for the first time, millions, maybe tens or hundreds of millions of people, if uh, Tucker Carlson's uh, interview gets as many views as his previous ones have had, will see for themselves uh, the man, the, the monster, what he, what he was really, and I'm sure he was, that, would he, that is what he was aiming at primarily of also. Um, but true to form, you might say, um, some of the Western media, I was glancing at the Scandinavian media headlines this morning, uh, didn't talk about the contents of his interview, but rather the fact that the far right commentator, Tucker Carlson, had made Trump's election case for him and, and that uh, Putin was in cahoots with Trump to get uh, him elected. And I'm, I'm just thinking of these um I know them well as well. I know, I know these these uh, guys in Scandinavia and sitting in Stockholm, the pastel-coloured old town, with their Mac Air laptops and their their trendy little coats, and uh, their neatly manicured beards and their pension schemes on the one the the Swedish television or uh, and and tapping away in their arrogant uh, omnipotence and knowledge uh, that they can command the Swedish mind and writing utter garbage about uh, perhaps the most important issue of our time, which is war and peace in uh, Eastern Europe, and not actually representing this man fairly. I was shocked, of course, but not surprised. But what did surprise me was actually the, the Daily Telegraph, which is usually where I go to to find out what the Whitehall extremists are thinking, which is always a useful thing. And they actually reported uh, genuinely more or less uh, the events, the interview that uh, that even uh, Putin's press secretary would not object to, which was that he extended that he was interested in peace, and that much was in a very, a very apparent from the body language and whole tenor. You could even perhaps detect a sense of regret in a micro moment that he'd actually carried out this invasion. This was a man who felt clearly and without rancor, but just stating it that he'd been betrayed by the West. He'd asked to join NATO in the year two thousand, but. Uh, Clinton's deep state minders had uh, re rejected it. He called for an anti-missile defense involving all countries, Russia and the West. That was rejected. Russia then went on to develop hypersonic weapons, which can target Whitehall in five minutes flat, uh, and probably Whitehall knows it. And then you've got uh, his, uh, his repeated attempts to try and broker an agreeable uh, peace that would even have left uh, Crimea, that was a surprising little thing, in uh, Ukrainian hands if the cards had been played correctly 
after the American coup in 2014. And I thought he fluently painted a, a picture, agree with it or not, of a Russia that was always on the defensive and always open to negotiation and that had been betrayed by, by sort of forces that underestimated Russia and, and disliked Russia. And uh, the Telegraph, to its credit, even reported, I think, which has been known to, to those of us following the non-corporate media for years, which is that the uh, Boris Johnson torpedoed a, a very far-reaching uh, peace deal that took uh, that was signed, almost penciled in, and almost signed by the Ukrainians and the and the Russians in uh, early 2022, which would have avoided nearly all the slaughter and bloodshed. Now. Um, a couple of Ukrainian figures who were uh, former advisors of Zelensky's and so on, so they're not exactly Russian spies uh, or assets, have said the same thing, that it was a fantastic deal. And some of the more abstruse requirements, which is denazification of the Ukrainian body politic, was sort of there for the birds or for completion's sake. But the main thing was it actually left Ukraine uh, with its hands on Donbass and uh, with security guarantees and so on. And that was actually reported by the Telegraph and uh, with actually uh, naming Boris Johnson as the guy who's accused of being guilty of that. Um, the over, I could talk much more about it. Maybe I'll get back to it on Monday. Uh, I hope the spooks and um, Whitehall and Washington will be poring over this thing and treating it seriously. Uh, but my overall impression was, especially after watching the Biden cluster F uh, press conference yesterday, where he showed a man who's totally mentally debilitated, but uh, is that we in the West have to up our game. We're going to compete diplomatically and in a friendly way with Russia and China. We're not going to have a third world war. We're not going to fall into some disaster, but we are going to have to have a better elite, a better political class, uh, because we are going toe to toe with really competent and bright people around the world. And so we have to up our game. Anyway, we've got uh, Basil Valentine, our news producer. We're going to pivot to South Asia after the break. This is TNT Radio. Keeping the commitment 24-7. I come to you for facts. I really appreciate what you and your team do. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hi, Basil. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you, Pele. Good to be with you. And hello to our viewers and listeners all around the world. You are going to tell us about the very important country of Pakistan and they're having an election and uh, what's going on there. Is it can we can we sort of fit it into a situation that we might be familiar with, you know, populism versus deep state or something like that? But you, you tell us what's going on there anyway. Well, first of all, uh, if I may, Pally, I just want to reference um, very quickly Boris Johnson's role in scuppering the Ukraine-Russia peace deal. I mean, we often talk about what a sort of bad dream dystopia we're living in, but in many ways, the pinnacle of that in recent years is that a buffoon like Johnson, uh, you know, entirely sort of selfish, rather ludicrous figure, propelled mm -hmm. only by his own ego and ambition, with a very limited geopolitical understanding, uh, and obviously even fewer morals, could somehow have been in a position to scupper a peace deal between two major countries that's resulted in the death of hundreds of thousands of people and the you know, tremendous um, destruction. It, it, it beggars belief, really. It's almost like, you know, somebody said that uh, 
Mickey Mouse had been responsible for scuppering the peace deal, it would be scarcely less believable. It's it's like a gigantic tragedy and a gigantic farce at the same time. Yes. And, um, you know, and, and I was reading that Boris Johnson was trying to finish his book on Shakespeare while trying to appease his uh, his wife and they uh, had a young child in Downing Street. And you think that he was trying to juggle all these things and COVID or the post-COVID and, and sort of... Uh, totally out of his depth and being sent yes. uh, on, on some hunch that the Russians were going to lie doggo and, and be defeated. And it's funny because, I, you know, the Guardians uh, hates Boris Johnson, okay, and he's a, he's a buffoon or something. But, of course, they're also extremely anti-Russian and they have got friends in Whitehall. That's my new euphemism. Uh, they're, and their friends in Whitehall uh, are t- sort of saying, well, Boris did the right thing in... Um, in right in right in 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 his ukraine uh, in his whole you hardline ukraine stance so you have two totally different borises on the pages of the guardian you have the churchillian hero facing down ukraine doing the right thing and then you have the total buffoon in domestic politics guardian yes. make up your minds which which boris is the real one of course it's the buffoon in my mind uh, good. Anyway. very good point Pelle. and uh, and i mean um it doesn't seem to weigh on his conscience at all that's the no, bizarre I, thing as like well a, you know i mean some people uh, are racked with guilt over having a library book out late. Um, know. You know, Boris responsible indirectly for the deaths of thousands and thousands of people. I mean, it just it beggars belief, frankly. Uh, but on to than Pakistan, Tony Blair, isn't he? yeah, yeah, as bad, yeah, pretty much, pretty much as bad as Tony Blair. I agree. Mm. Who belongs mm. in jail, of course. Mm. Um, well, it, or in a hotter place for Pakistan. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, is Pakistan a modern functioning democracy or is it some kind of military dictatorship with only sham elections? That's the hmm. question that's sort of being asked of it. Um, of course, the backdrop to the elections is that the most popular politician in Pakistan, who I can safely say without doubt would be elected prime minister in a landslide, were he not in prison, is Imran Khan. Um, But of course, he's languishing in in jail. And his Pakistan PTI party uh, has been forced to fight the election with one hand tied behind its back, almost literally harassed Mm. constantly. Imran's party fights state pressure in Pakistan election. The Pakistan Tariq A. Insaf party is in the crosshairs of the military who run the day-to-day affairs. Nevertheless, a lot of candidates have stood as independents. Uh, This is a Pakistani tradition. You can stand as an independent and then declare your affiliation to any party within 72 hours of victory. And the independents, with just over half the vote counted, are ahead. A lot of these PTI loyalists have been forced to run ahead of independence, and they've now got in front. If I can quote Bilal Jilani, executive director of the polling group Gallup Pakistan, he said that even if the PTI party, that's Imran Khan's party, is unable to form a government, the results show that there are limits to political engineering, he said. He told AFP, which shows that the military do not always get their way. That is the silver lining. Wow. So um, 
Imran Khan, he's still in jail, presumably, but he would uh, get an amnesty if these independents, who will then declare their allegiance to the PTI within 48 hours, get on top. And we will have a sort of, was I mean, let, I mean let's kind of, I, I know it's uh, always a, a mugs game to sort of try and squeeze it into our Western template. But he, isn't he a sort of populist friend of Trump and, and, and wants to make peace with Russia? Whereas the military are kind of more aligned with the U US and the, the deep state there. Yes, absolutely. That's why he was deposed in the first place. He refused to join the so-called coalition against Russia, refused to sanction Russia, uh, wants to make peace, as you say. Um, mm. Whether or not he gets an amnesty if the PTI form a majority is a different matter altogether. Um, the Muslim League remain in second place. That's the party of Nawaz Sharif. They have 43 seats to 60 currently held by uh, PTI-affiliated independents. But it isn't a majority for the PTI because in third place, you have the Pakistan People's Party, the party of former Prime Minister Ali Bhutto. They have 37 seats. They're a traditionally left-wing party and might be expected to form a government in coalition with the PTI, but that remains to be seen. Right. Well, I mean, um, the do okay. Do we know? I mean, was there a sort of Islamist um, faction, or or is that a part of the Pakistani politics, secular versus well, uh, yes, I mean, Islamist, but, but not. Yes, but not of the sort of uh, head-chopping variety. I'm afraid to say that uh, the uh, extremists have been responsible for bombings and shootings in the Western provinces in recent days in the run-up to the election. Um, the, the nearest thing to an Islamist party is the Muslim League, the one right. headed by Nawaz Sharif, which is allied with the military. It's not, therefore... Uh, a Taliban type organization right. uh, from it. It's more of your sort of, dare I say, traditional authoritarian um, Islamist, but allied with Washington type party, right. also allied with the military. Okay. And I, I, I wonder what the Indians and Chinese are looking forward to or expecting out of this uh, and how Pakistan is going to align itself or maybe not much maybe these things change slowly after all geopolitical interests yes i mean you, you would think that pakistan was for example ready to join the brics group of countries um it doesn't appear to have made any particular overtures and of course the the enmity with india is historic ongoing requires you know a lot more uh, balm to be applied to it, shall we say, before uh, there's a lasting peace there. But, uh, you know, all in all, uh, there are discrepancies, of course, in these elections, people complaining about the late release of voting figures due to an internet glitch, believe it or not, mm. Pelly. Um, right, yeah, so exactly. Same, pro same problems all over the world. United States, Pakistan, yeah. very difficult to run an election without the internet these days. I don't see what's wrong with paper ballots counted by hand, but hey. Well, I, uh, I'll just say a, a quick thing before we uh, end this uh, news talk. Uh, 
here because I'll forget otherwise. But in in 2018, the last Swedish election, um, the the, the so called far right. Um, the associate Sweden Democrats who wanted to limit immigration, they were the largest party, I think, on 24%. And there was an internet glitch for an hour or something in this uh, high-tech, highly advanced country. And uh, afterwards, they suddenly seemed to be a few percent down to 17 or 18%. I can't swear on that. I you know, have to go back into the records and so on. But I remember thinking at the time, and it was all over social media, and my very closely Swedish observing friends were saying, well, this is a... Uh, a, a, a fraud that's going on. Anyway, I'll keep an open mind about that. Well, anyway, Basil, thank you very much for today's update and news talk. Very interesting to talk to you. We'll follow the Pakistan story maybe on Monday. Anyway, thank you very much, Basil. Talk yes, to you soon. Good to talk to you, Pele, and see you next Good week. Good to talk to you. Cheers. This is TNT's Pervoy Morich. He details factually how Russia is rolling out the algorithm ghetto. Um, you know, the, the, the multipolar edition of the algorithm ghetto, a prototype of a traffic light that records traffic violations by a pedestrian at a crossing was tested in Moscow. So Russians now, they'll, they'll have a, the government will take a snapshot of their face and then run that through the databases to figure out who is who and then find them, uh, I suppose. Uh, and then, you know, he, he points out that there are a lot of developments now, Moscow 2030, it's it's uh they want to make uh moscow achieve smart city status uh and there's just you know you look at the white papers moscow and russia are all in on agenda 2030 smart cities algorithm ghetto digital ids for voye morich on today's news talk tnt Radio works because of its ability to personalize to the listener. What's exciting these days is that people are rediscovering it. You know, people are really rediscovering just how powerful radio is, how ubiquitous it is. It's in our cars, it's in our homes. There are so many new ways to access it. It's everywhere. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Discussing the politics of the new European populism, Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk. TNT. I'd like to welcome a fellow TNT host and a prolific blogger and thinker and uh, interviewer, Hervoya Moric. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong. You get a go to pronounce my name wrong. <laughs> uh, welcome to the show, and we will talk some events and geopolitics. Uh, I know that you have a, a large number of strings to your bow, but I'm quite interested. Let's start with something trivial. I see that you have three flags on your twitter bio uh what is your identity because you have a um, croatian name and you uh seem to obviously have some uh, background there um do you see the world from multiple perspectives or do you identify with one one part of the world i are you gonna say multiple multiple perspectives a multipolar <laughs> perspective no uh well it's it's it gets confusing now I, I identify mostly as a christian but um my name actually means croat croatian because mm -hmm. uh in croatian uh Hrvatska, you say croatia is called Hrvatska, mm -hmm. hence my name Hrvoje, the roots uh, i was born in the u.s so i'm a proud american um also raised a bit in croatia fluent in croatian proud croatian i identify first as a croatian funnily enough uh, and in 2018, that's what, about six years ago, I, I became a Mexican national. So I'm also a proud uh, Mexican. I take my citizenship uh, seriously. Wow. 
Okay. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not even sure actually what I am sometimes. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that the perspective that's giving living in Sweden gives me actually. Um, but if I didn't have my name, a Swedish name, I probably James or something. People would say, "Oh, you're just an, an Englishman, you know, upper class guy." <laughs> um, so what? Well, you, you um, uh, are. Um, I, I'm always been curious about the, uh, the, the if I can talk about uh, Spanish speaking America. Where is because they always they stay out of these um, Cold War situations now that are happening now. I mean, apart from Cuba, obviously. Where what what is the Spanish uh, American press saying about this, and where does Mexico sort of lean because they are next to America? Isn't isn't that saying close to close to America, far from God or something? And I I because I sometimes say. I, there's a there's a blogger called Anne Applebaum, or oh, she's a she's ferociously anti-Russian, and she has a sort of residence on the pages of the Washington liberal establishment media. And I I once tweeted her because I knew her back when she was in London, saying, "Well, you know, why don't you ask uh, the Mexicans on American power, and they might say exactly the same thing as the polls say about Russian power." I mean, that's just the the nature of lying next to a a, a, a giant, you know, and you're the smaller country. It's it's not to do with the characteristics of that country, but anyway, what what so what do the Mexicans see about all this this whole debate about the new Cold War and the conflict in Ukraine and so on? I I think you've got different strains. I used to teach at the, the Tecnológico de Monterrey, which is like the, one of the top universities here in Mexico. Uh, it's private. It's very globalist. Um, it's actually the only university in all of Latin America that goes to Davos. They're officially affiliated with Davos. Uh, and a lot of my former colleagues um, who are liberal globalist minded Mexicans, um, they've been indoctrinated fully. You know, they buy the official narrative uh, on all of these things. Um, so that's one segment of the Mexican upper class that work in the government, that, that love the United Nations, that are very liberal globalist minded, who would be anti-Russian, pro-Ukraine. But then you've got another segment more more uh closer to say AMLO uh you know the president and, and Morena who are more pragmatic practical you've seen uh AMLO um he's tried to remain neutral right um so they want to work with with everyone um from an economic pers perspective work with the Chinese uh respect the relationship with the United States uh you know and try to get the best of, of both worlds and so that's kind of how I feel um you know uh AMLO has made clear, you know, he doesn't want to poo-poo the Russians. He doesn't want to make comments and he kind of, and, and that's diplomacy. You know, you want to kind of work with as many people um, as you can. Hmm. What, and do, do you follow, I mean, let's say Argentinian, well, I, the Argentines are now uh, more, uh, because that new prime minister looks a bit crazy. Uh, Millet, I think he uh, is quite anti-Russian, pro-Ukrainian. But what, um, where do the other, uh, it's a generalization, I know, but where do the other Latin American countries stand in, in relation to the US? And is Mexico more pro-US than other countries because of its proximity or, or, or how does it stand? Yeah, I would say Mexico is pretty pro-US. You ask any Mexican in general, they like the US, uh, they go there, they, they travel, they work legally and, or, or illegally, uh, family and, and, and friends. Um, and so 
a lot of people have a positive look on the United States to understand the, the importance. Um, and, you know, even there's a, a lot of Americanization happening in here here in mm -hmm. Mexico. You know, Target, I think, is going to open up shops. The famous retail chain in the U.S. is going to open up here um, in, in, in Mexico. And so um, I think overall, a lot of Latin America, we don't think so much about these things. I think, uh, you know, the, the, the new Cold War, because we've got so much going on here, you know, right. um, economy, people are just trying to survive economically. And then we have to deal with the security issues, uh, you know, day to day. And so I feel like that's that's kind of what's front and center on people's minds and, and a little less mm. so uh, all of this stuff happening um, outside. Yeah. But you know, AMLO has talked about, and I've been mentioning this, few people mentioned that he's he's called for a North American Union. You know, he says, mm -hmm. let's model the European Union and integrate Canada, USA, and Mexico. Uh, and then uh, you've also had Bukele of El Salvador say the same thing. July last year, mm -hmm. Bukele said, let's copy the EU and create a Central American Union. Uh, and then you've got a movement as well in South America for... Uh, but but there's a squabbles between which um, integration plan that they want to go forward with. And then, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. Millet says uh, he's not a fan of BRICS. And so, yeah, there's always these squabbles. But we'll go into that. We'll talk to that, about that after the break. But in short, do, do you think uh, a Mexican-American union, do, are you are you in favor of that? that um, I'm not in favor of it. But at this point, it's just kind of like things are proceeding as they are proceeding and it would it would be a centralization of power you know it's just super nationalism and i'm not really yeah. a fan of that yeah yeah yeah. anyway we'll talk about that after the break we'll have some news headlines now this is tnt radio big news news a story which contains more than first meets the ear tnt radio news matt boyland here with a look at your tnt headlines U.S. President Joe Biden has called a rare late-night press conference at the White House, defending his mental capacity and his ability to run the country. Because I'm the most qualified person in this country to be president of the United States and finish the job I started. Donald Trump is another step closer to securing the Republican presidential nomination after winning the Nevada caucus. And Russian President Vladimir Putin has told Tucker Carlson that he has no intentions of attacking NATO. The common housefly. Caught in the clutches of the spider's web. Every move it makes just makes matters worse. Then, dinner time. Feast on the captivating stories, videos, and helpful information on our website. Whoa. Dinner's ready. Oh, man. Escape is futile. Just one more video. Get stuck in our web. TNTradio.live. Right. Welcome back to TNT Radio. This is the Pelanerov Taylor Show. We are talking about Mexico and the United States. Um, from a sort of Trump, uh, Trump's America, or is his Trump the Trump universe? I mean, um, America is uh, receiving unacceptably large amounts of illegal immigrants, which may have the aim of of balancing the election in favor of the uh, completely decrepit Biden. What are the Mexican, what's the Me Mexican perspective on these large people transfers from Mexico into America? 
There are different perspectives. I've spoken to some Mexicans who um, complain because they, they say that the migrants that don't get into the U.S. remain in Mexico, right? And cause a strain on Mexican society, economy. Um, so that's one issue. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, and, and, and others, you know, say it's it's a good thing. But, you know, I've, I've talked about this uh, a lot uh, on my program as well, that I, I just see it as a sustained attack on the United States. And it's it's open. You know, the the, the globalists, um, they openly talk about this, how it's a project. Um, uh, even the U.N. has a paper called Replacement Migration. That's literally the name of the document, Replacement Migration. And the U.N. is financing all of this, which is insane. Um, and I've had guests on from Panama and other countries who've said they've seen with their own eyes maps that the NGOs, Red Cross, um, give out to migrants to help them all along their path. And this is basically, this is a, um, it's a war. It's a military strategy to break down the United States and, and Europe. I'm also, like I mentioned from in Croatia, the same thing. Croatia is having problems dealing with migrants and, um, it's it's basically to to my view is that this all comes down to a world government, you know, because it, you have to break down the West um, economically. So the global South, um, get, they get closer to parity in terms of economics uh, and, and, and politics. So that, that that then gets you closer to, to trying to form a world supranational world federation and they uh, you know they don't want these global corporations that run everything they don't want any strong um polity right they don't want a strong united states uh, anyone that could you know potentially oppose this global project so that's that's kind of how i uh, see things well i, I agree but and, and maybe i mean what uh, putin stands for the national interest of russia that's a very large country so maybe putin and, and trump and all all nation states we should unite against this sort of world government that's trying to destroy us and led by corporates and and other things you know so we're we're attacking the wrong thing and the other thing that struck me is that you know why why should americans i talk about ukraine because it's so close to us here in scandinavia the baltic sea is very shallow and then it's suddenly you're in russia um is what why should you worry about that border when there's a border much closer to you you know all the Swedes, like, like there's a Swede of a certain kind, let's say in his 30s and 40s, you know, sometimes an engineering or military background. And he'll say, yeah, no problem. 40% Muslim in my hometown. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Young men, you know, fighting age, no problem. Oh, no, but we've got to fight those Russians over there 5,000 kilometers away because they're going to take over our country. And I said, well, isn't these young men, I mean, they might be nice guys and their mothers love them, but I mean, they're swaggering around the streets here and on their on welfare and they're quite aggressive sometimes um, isn't that an invasion force you know no no you know so it's this double think about this whole conflict and i don't know if you have i mean you do you ever have that is it, it, debate in america ukraine versus migration what, what is settlement and what is invasion you know yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense. In fact, uh, there's a Swede that I know that was here in Mexico recently, and I'm asking him, it's a friend, and I, I'm asking, like, well, I'm reading in the papers that there's these rapes going on in Sweden, um, chaos, 
and they're kind of the of the kind that you just described where it's like no no everything's fine nothing's happening i'm like but i'm reading it on the papers and they, they want to be politically correct um and so yeah i would totally agree we should the u.s should just drop everything and focus on the border because mm -hmm. um there's i had a friend a year ago call me he's he's an evangelist a christian evangelist he used to live in mexico and he's he lives in texas now he goes to the border between texas and mexico and preaches the gospel and he told he calls me up five minutes before my tnt show saying uh, there's a thousand russian men here like he sees them he's using the google translate to communicate with them right. we got russian uh, military age men chinese um a arabs africans the, the entire world uh, you know i think i read that thirty-three thousand uh people from turkey uh um we're, we're coming in um over the past couple of years or uh so we should drop everything and deal with the border issue but unfortunately our you know um intelligence agencies are were run by traitors you know the department of homeland security mayorkas um they're all complicit in this project you know the the impeachment uh of of mayorkas uh failed uh sadly uh, you know, I've I've had the DHS ban me from PayPal, and so we're 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 run by a bunch of um, traitors uh, in, in in the US. So just tell me what's happening with these the border deal. I mean, from a from a European perspective, we're trying to f find out whether uh, the, the isn't the Democrats are trying to to stitch up a deal that will get their beloved Ukraine aid through in return for some concessions on the border, but the Republicans are not doing it. Is that right? Is there going to be a border deal uh, signed before the election? I think there could be. I haven't followed that closely, but um, from my view, from past interviews, um, there was a guy called Todd Miller that I've, I've read his book. He's really good. He's leftist, but he talks about the border security complex, which no one talks about. And he says it's a bipartisan thing. So it's not really left or right that, you know, even under Biden, you've seen all this investment going uh, into this border security complex, and that now they're using new technology. You know, forget this idea of some, you know, old fashioned wall. They're creating this smart border, uh, AI, drones, cameras, and both parties are involved. And the scary thing that he points out is that this is a model for all countries for the future. He goes to these expos and he sees it's, it's being scaffolded. So like you, you don't see it, but if if uh, if you take a step back, then you can see the forest for the trees. And he says the EU, that's what you, the EU ha is going online this year or next. Etias, the 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 system for non-Europeans now have to pay ten euros and fill out a social credit form to see if he'll be approved. Uh, and so it's it's a bipartisan deal. So let, let's not think you know that it's it's le uh, Democrats versus Republicans, you know. But you're saying, I mean, you want a border, right? I understand that. But you're saying you don't want that kind of border that kind of checks your social credit score. And I, I guess that's all part of a, a larger scheme of controlling our lives and channeling it. I mean, we might not be able to leave our towns because we spend a credit card that is not authorized for, for spending outside your home community. Everything is possible, isn't it? The imagination is the limit. Yeah, that's and, that's what they're trying. They're trying to build that yeah. out, and their their U.S. is assisting other countries to try and build the mm -hmm. same thing. They've got offices right. all over the world to help them uh, wow. create recreate this over there. Right, and it sounds as if I mean it's terrible that will. You almost said it by the by, but I mean it's incredible that you've been banned from PayPal because of your journalistic work, you know. And uh, I guess we can all have reason to be worried about that. 
Um, have you, are you, um, is there a particular story that led them to uh, banning you or um, we'll we have to wind up now. So we'll just. Yeah, it was during April 22 when they rolled out the disinformation governance board. Uh, and I think it was more related to anti-war um, stuff. Yeah. But it's just crazy. The fact wow. that the, the American government agencies target, you know, civilians yeah. like myself. Incredible. Okay, Avoya, uh, great to have you on, and uh, we will talk soon, Avoya Moritz, uh, a, a TNT fellow host, talking to us from Mexico. Thank you very much. This is TNT Radio. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. One of the more amazing things I've seen recently took place last week at a Senate hearing looking into social media and the negative effects it has on our children. Here's Senator Josh Howley confronting Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. 37% of teenage girls between 13 and 15 were exposed to unwanted nudity in a week on Instagram. You knew about it. Who did you fire? Senator, this is why we're building all Who these did you fire? Tools. Senator, that's, I don't think that that's... Who did you fire? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to answer that. Because um, <laughs> I mean, you didn't is, fire anybody, right? You didn't take Senator, any significant I, I don't action. Think it's appropriate to talk about... It's not appropriate. Do you know who's sitting behind you? Holly then pointed out to Zuckerberg that in attendance were parents of children who have been harmed or, as he put it, are now gone. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people? I'm sorry for everything that you have Zuckerberg getting up and apologizing, of course, too little, too late. But what we saw was virtually unprecedented. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT. I'm Cal Fire Battalion Chief Isaac Sanchez. And normally we like to provide you with tips on how to keep yourselves and your family safe during wildfires. But given the historic impacts that the weather has had on our state this year, we would like to provide you with tips on how to keep yourself safe during extreme weather. If you reside in an area susceptible to flooding, Please take the necessary steps to prepare to evacuate if advised. Make sure you've identified at least two exit routes out of your neighborhood as one of them may be blocked or flooded. As the weather develops, remember to check in on vulnerable neighbors and family members. They may need additional time to prepare for evacuation. And just like during a wildfire, if you feel unsafe, please evacuate. You don't have to wait for the order to come. Keep an emergency go bag ready in case you need to evacuate. And always remember to plan for the safety of your pets as well. If you must leave, never drive around roadblocks. It can take as little as 12 inches of water to sweep your vehicle away. And always remember the mantra, turn around, don't drown. Be aware of first responders working in highly impacted areas, especially on the roads. For additional safety tips and updates on CAL FIRE activities, follow us on social media or visit fire.ca.gov. Discussing the politics of the new European populism. Pella Neuroth Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Well, uh, thank you. Welcome back to TNT Radio, Freedom Radio. This is my, it's my pleasure to introduce one of Britain's best known investigative TV journalists, Roger Bolton, whom I've known about for decades. And this is the first time I have the pleasure of talking to him. Uh, he has, uh, will launch straight into. Uh, the work which you will forever be associated with uh, because we're talking to an audience who probably might have been born after 1988, but uh, no apologies for that. And I know that you've probably talked about it in interviews before. 
But you became famous for Death on the Rock, a 1988 documentary that managed to enormously irritate Margaret Thatcher. What's the story there? What was that documentary about? Yeah, she said she was beyond fury. I'm not sure where that place is, but um, well, you've got to look at the context of the times. Uh, 1988, the troubles in Northern Ireland had been going on uh, for almost 20 years. There was no solution in sight. And I say the troubles in Northern Ireland, but of course, the IRA had worked out that they were pretty well penetrated by British intelligence. It was very difficult for them to carry out a great deal of activity in Northern Ireland. So they moved to the mainland, to the UK, but also tried to expand into Europe. And what they did, what they looked at was Gibraltar. And uh, they thought there's a way in which we can strike against uh, the Brits and uh, in some way that really matters, but it's quite easy to get to because Gibraltar, as your audience will know, is joined to Spain. You can just walk across the border. It's not that most difficult to get across. So that was what they did. They selected um, um, Gibraltar to explode a bomb in a car. And uh, there is, and they were looked as though they were trying to do it at the time when a military band, a British military band, would be playing uh, and there would also be an audience. So that was their operation, there's no doubt. They were planning what most people would call an atrocity because of the consequences that would occur. Um, the British intelligence got wind of it very early. And uh, what basically happened was that the IRA members crossed the border on a reconnaissance, unarmed, without a bomb, walked around. Uh, they were at a certain point interrupted by uh, SAS members, apparently three, there may have been more, and they were shot dead. And they were shot dead, um, well, as they one SAS soldier explained to me, recently, once they start shooting, they don't stop till the person's dead. And so there were tens, twenties of bullet holes in these three IRA members, two men, two men and a woman. Some of them um, were clearly shot close to the ground, if not on the ground. The British government then put out a statement which said, a rather triumphant statement, which said, we caught the IRA in our operation. Uh, they made efforts to uh, resist arrest and to uh, return fire, and we killed them. And that was the announcement that went out. Problem is, they weren't armed. There was no bomb. So the following day in the House of Commons, Sir Geoffrey Howe had to get up and say, ah, uh, yeah, not quite as we said. And uh, they were unarmed, and uh, there was not a bomb in the car. And of course, you know, you knew as a journalist what would happen. The IRA would sell, say that's evident of a shoot to kill policy. There'd be a row. And it didn't take a genius to work out that since one of the IRA members was a young woman, um, that, you know, her face would be painted onto the end of some of these houses in, in uh, Belfast in terms of the Virgin Mary. So we thought we'd better go and find out what happened. And, you know, wh why, why, why is this government announcement so at variance with what actually happened? That was the genesis of trying to explore it. Then while we were doing that, events were taking another turn when the IRA members were taken back to Northern Ireland to be buried and given full military honours by the IRA. A Protestant gunman came and started shooting and killed people. Mm. At the funeral of those who'd been killed in the cemetery by the Protestant gunman, two British Army sergeants got caught on the edge of that uh, funeral. They were stripped 
taken away and shot by the IRA in their underpants, and their mm. bodies left. And so it appeared that the troubles, which had been terrible, were getting even worse. I remember that uh, photograph. It was on the front page of The Observer uh, of those uh, young men, corporals or whatever, lying spread-eagled like Jesus figures with blood streaming from their bodies, you know, in the mud or whatever, and their sort of white chests. So Something I never forget, just like I don't, I never forget your documentary. It's interesting to see what we remember of, of 18 or 19. And that, for me, uh, symbolized the late troubles. But what, I mean, the, you had... Um, you exposed this story that they weren't uh, armed, but that they had explosives in a car on the mainland side, right? So they were planning the atrocities, so they were not angels. And you had the oh, tabloids no, they were, against oh, no. you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry, for, forgive me for interrupting yeah. up to you. Um, no, they weren't angels. They were clearly, um, well, two of them had certainly carried out seven murders, several murders, killings before, mm. whatever terminology you want to apply. Um, one of them had made bombs that had been used. The woman had also, um, was a really intelligent, university-educated woman, not from a particularly IRA background, but had got involved. Um, mm. So there's no doubt what they were doing. They had a bomb in a car, but not on in Gibraltar. It was away in the mainland. Mm. So mm. there's no attempt. And the IRA made one of their few um, public relations mistakes, IRA Sinn Féin. As soon as they heard the British government saying that there'd been a shootout and their members had been killed, the IRA put out a statement saying our members had been killed on active service. If they hadn't done that, the embarrassment for the British government would be greater. So the IRA members were on active service. They were trying to carry out what a lot of people would call an atrocity. It just mm -hmm. happened they weren't armed and there wasn't a bomb in the car. Now, the key question is, you know, did the British government, did the soldiers know? This is against the background where there were strong stories about the Brits having a shoot-to-kill policy. Yeah. And what is true is, as I said, if the SAS started to shoot, they shot to kill. And that on the whole, previously in Northern Ireland, if IRA members had been caught planting a bomb or doing something, and the British knew about it beforehand, on the whole, the uh, IRA were dead men, but then the IRA were also shooting British soldiers wherever and blowing they could. The IRA wanted to frame it, of course, in terms of a war. Mrs. Thatcher wanted to frame it entirely in terms of criminals. Mm. You know, you are the, either for um, the government, you are the for civilization, she would say, or you're against it. She had no knowledge of the situation in Northern Ireland. So she was powerful, intransigent, determined, struck a great chord with a section of British population. The IRA were feeding off a long, long history of Republican struggles in which the mm. uh, guns had been used. So they represented themselves as freedom fighters. Mind you, by 1988, there was a lot of corruption in the IRA. They were blowing up people mm. they disagreed with, not British soldiers necessarily. They were robbing banks. They were running protection records. There's a lot of corruption in it as well as idealism. But 88 was about, now Now a lot of people, the news followed the story, as I say, which went on to what happened subsequently. And I thought, well, a current affairs show should try and establish what actually did happen, because everybody argue about it in future. Why don't we try and go and find out what happened? So I sent a researcher reporter there, and they went from every house, everybody they could find, and they could find nobody who supported the British government's story. Nobody. Mm. So I went to the MOD and I said, uh, you know, will you give us a representative and uh, 
tell us, no, we're not briefing you. Then I went back and I thought they're playing a game. You know, they'll give us a minister when we've done all our filming, when they know exactly what we've got. And at the last minute, they'll give us an interview, but they didn't. I then went back to them saying to the MOD, um, can we blow up a car? You needed it. We needed their permission to use enough gelatinite to show what you think and what we now probably know from the from the from the uh, uh, the bomb that had been uh, captured on the mainland of Spain, not in Gibraltar. We probably know how big this explosion was going to be. Can we blow up a car to demonstrate it? No. Mm-hmm. I'd never faced that level of um, opposition. Normally, in this situation, you get background briefings for everybody. You know, go across the mm-hmm. north down, try and get it from Sinn Fein IRA, try and get it from the MOD. Mm-hmm. Nope, they wouldn't get it. So th- this was very suspicious. And then we found witnesses who actually said that in their view, um, um, you know, they could have been mistaken, but they said what they saw. They saw people being shot in the back. They saw, saw people being shot without a warning. Now, they might have heard a warning. There was some way. But as I say, nobody would support the British position. So we thought, what's our conclusion? We can't come to one, but what we should do is place all that evidence and uh, then suggest there needs to be proper further inquiry. You see, the defense of the British uh, soldiers is the classic one, that mm. the enemy is making attempts to resist. Mm. Well, and they use the same words. And were they resisting if they were shot in the back running away? Why would mm. they resist if they didn't have guns? Why would they resist if there were no bombs? And then the argument was put forward, oh, well, maybe they could have had a, a trigger device in their hand which if they pressed, would have uh, exploded the car. Well, set aside the fact there's no bomb in the car. In the, in, in, in the opinion of bomb experts formerly employed by the government, actually, Colonel Stiles, uh, that wasn't possible in Gibraltar. It was it's too difficult. So the whole thing didn't add up. So we made this program. And then just before um, it was transmitted, unknown to me, the government rang up the regulator, the broadcasting regulator, and said, please ban the program. So the boss of the uh, regulator looked at the program and kept them informed all the time and said, no, no, there's no reason not to put it out. We'll put it out. And then the government said, well, it's going to prejudice the inquest. And then he thought, well, hold on. A, the inquest is in Gibraltar, not in the UK. It's outside British jurisdiction. Secondly, the MOD had been feeding inaccuracies continued in newspapers such as the Sunday Times. Lies, actually. Mm. Let's, Let's be truthful. So that was all right. They could flood the papers with lies. We couldn't just present evidence without a conclusion, but saying, I'm afraid to say we can't find anybody who supports the government position. So uh, having failed to get the program banned um, on the day of its transmission, without having seen it, the uh, Foreign Secretary, Sir Geoffrey Howe, said it was um, a disgrace and so on. And anyway, there was then inquiry. It took about eight months. And then a, a former Conservative minister chaired this inquiry, a good man, Lord Windbush, who knew a bit about television, but a former Conservative minister from Northern Ireland, combined with a QC, Richard Rampton, who's just died. Uh, and they went to Gibraltar and they talked to witnesses. They had a look at all the rushes. They went through all our expenses. I mean, I don't think there's another programme. And in the end, yeah, we made one or two very small mistakes, but they said, fortunately for us, after that time, that uh, it was a very good programme. It was made honestly and decently and whatever. A government, of course, would accept that. They said it was a report by television, about television, by television, for television. Um, right. And there we left. And two years later, the company for which I worked, Thames Television, lost its franchise. Now, 
Whether it lost it as a result of that, I don't know, but it can't have helped. Well, I remember it. I, I read a, a Wikipedia article on that, or uh, your, your, your the controller of Thames Television saying, well, maybe it was because we had the wrong bidding strategy. So there's a, there is a normal. But I remember then thinking, and all my friends thinking, well, Thames, which was the, for, for outsiders, this was the um, London franchise of ITV, which was the third network. And we all watched it. It was extremely well-respected and its logo was really famous. It was on par with the BBC and everyone was really shocked. And it was replaced by this less serious London channel. I think it was called Carlton and everyone was disappointed. And we saw that as a blow to journalism that Margaret Thatcher really was punishing. Well, I think it, it was, I mean, to be fair, um, the Thames may have lost the franchise, whether uh, I made Death or Rock or not. It, we got in this stupid situation where Mrs. basically Mrs. Thatcher wanted to break what she saw, the power of television. So she took on the BBC first of all, and she got somebody to one of her favourite uh, rather right-wing professors to do an inquiry about could the BBC take advertising. And to her shock, he came back and said no. Because the BBC took advertising, you would destroy the rest of the industry because the advertising would come off everywhere else and go to the mm -hmm. BBC. And so all the rest of industry, the non-BBC people would say, please don't do conservative supporters who gave the party lots of money. Please don't do this. Don't give advertising to the BBC. So she felt a bit. So she replaced the chairman of the BBC and got uh, a director general fired and exerted the usual pressure the government's done. It, and then she turned to ITV, which she thought, which was true actually, was overstaffed. And they came up with this situation where um, it didn't matter how long. At, at that time, ITV was divided into a number of separate franchises, franchises on yeah. a geographical basis. And a handful of those companies, perhaps about five, made programs for the whole network. The rest did mainly regional programs. So she came up with the idea that you um, should have a bidding war. So it didn't matter if you'd you know, done the franchise well, badly, whatever. What mattered was in the little envelope. It was a bidding and everybody had to bid blindly. So you had to go through a quality threshold, but everybody got through that. After that, it was who bid the most. And the, of course, it's a lot easier for somebody who comes from the outside. There's no studios, nothing to deal with, mm. anything like that, mm. can, can put in a bid a large amount of money. And a lot of people did that, and Thames lost his franchise. One of the saddest stop you things. There. Sorry, sorry, uh, sorry, Roger. Sorry. I mean, uh, I realize this the 20 minute slot that we've got for this particular interview where yeah. to cover everything I want to talk to you about. But so what I'll say is I'm hoping to have you on again, or perhaps in a different format or a longer sure. interview. So more things I want to talk to you about. But I'll end with this, which is, I'll pivot in a slightly different direction. Um, you don't have to answer the question now, whether this was the worst sort of thing the British SAS did, and that's why you were, they came on to you like a ton of bricks, or did, if they did a lot of other bad things, we just don't, don't know about it, like shoot to kill. And I'll tell you a little bit about my background, because I'm, I'm a half Swedish, half English, and. I speak Swedish fluently, and I came to Sweden partly because I wanted to pursue the stories that happened in Scandinavia that the British media didn't have access to. And one of those stories was the assassination of the Swedish Prime Minister, Olof Palme, in 1986. Thatcher was in charge, Britain. And I've done years on-off research into this story, and I went down to South Africa last year because the South Africans are, are fingered as one of the belligerents, one of the killing... And some very senior intelligence people there from the apartheid regime said that Thatcher was ultimately responsible for that. So that's a real bombshell. It would obviously completely overturn our opinion of, of that, whole, the, that whole decade. And I'm doing more work into it. 
and uh, we can talk uh, more I, offline I would, later. Yeah, I would. Could I just say I would be very skeptical about that? I don't think Mrs. Thatcher would authorise that. But indeed, yeah, yeah. The people close to Mrs. Thatcher. There were some very strange people. Very I mean, strange people. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very, yeah. very Fair strange on. people. So it's not impossible, but it would be unlikely that she herself would authorise it.